Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Is it possible that Allah and Jehovah are sort of or even mostly the same? Could it be that we have more in common than we thought? A lot of people seem to think so. But what does the Quran actually tell us? What dangers are lurking in this line of thought? Well, that's the conversation we'll have coming up. Respectful, kind, unflinchingly honest. This is The Land and the Book. We welcome you to our one-hour flyover of the Middle East. You say, who's we? Well, Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East expert, and John Geiger, not so noted, but very curious Israel fan. Charlie, we're glad to connect with you today. John, it's great connecting with you. You know, it's good to finally be back uh, in the in the right time zone and yeah. talking to you, but uh, any time I spend with you is time well spent. Well, you know, as you say, you're back from Israel now just over a week and your sleep cycle's getting back to normal. You were one of the very first evangelical Christian groups to be let into Israel after more than a year of uh, closed borders. What was it like? Is Israel ready to reopen its door to tourists and how were the hotels, the sites, uh, other infrastructure? You know, to summarize it all, I'd say Israel is well on their way to being open for tourists. Now, that doesn't mean everything ran like a well-oiled machine. You know, we found some places that were closed because uh, they're not used to tourists. So we found people who were actually coming up to us and saying, are, are you tourists or are you locals? That uh, They were unexpectedly uh, surprised to see a tourist there. There were people who spoke to us uh, in uh, Russian or in some other language because they hadn't been used to seeing Americans hmm. for so long. Uh, so some places were absolutely empty. That was probably the biggest shock of all, to walk into a place like Capernaum and be the only person there, or to walk into the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and have the absolutely no one else there. Uh, it was almost spooky. Hmm. Now, not everything was running well, but that's part of the problem. Like any government, you know, all the different agencies within Israel and within even the Palestinian area aren't all in sync. You know, as I shared a few weeks ago, to get into Israel, we had to be vaccinated for the COVID virus uh, with one of the vaccines recognized by Israel. And thankfully, those used here in the U.S. are on that list. Then we had to arrange to get a PCR COVID test within 72 hours of actually leaving for Israel. That took some searching to find a place that offered the right test at a reasonable price and that could guarantee that we'd get the results in time. Uh, once we landed in Israel, we had to take two more tests, another PCR test and a serological test to prove our bodies were producing antibodies to the virus. Uh, they said if we failed either test, we would need to remain in quarantine. Well, thankfully, we all passed with flying colors. Hmm. And then before we flew back to the U.S., we had to take another test. Now, all of those tests were you know, a bit disconcerting, but in the end, the vaccine had done its job and we all passed and, and didn't have any problems. Just two weeks before we left, Israel dropped most of the restrictions they'd had in place before that to prevent the virus's spread. And the day we arrived, they dropped all mask requirements. That was so nice. Indoors, outdoors, everything was back to normal. Yeah. Uh, the hotels were prepared for visitors. And that's good. They were glad to see us back. The dining rooms were... I'd say almost back to normal, but in many cases, it was Israelis and our small group that were it. Uh, there really weren't any other tourists there, but I think as guests pick up, uh, they're definitely going to be ready. Yeah, The sites themselves were, were empty, but they were fine. Sometimes, you know, you did get a sense that they hadn't been visited very much over the past year, but <laughs> at other places, the pandemic gave the staff time to make uh, much needed improvements. Yeah. And in a few places, there were new surprises on display that just made it fun to see what had changed. Well, those are great insights and uh, appreciate your being our eyes and ears. 
It has only been a month since the brutal conflict between Israel and Hamas, and that tension also kind of spilled over, erupting into mixed Jewish and Arab neighborhoods in different cities around the country. So how were things in terms of your own personal safety, did you feel? And were there any no-go areas that maybe you guys had to avoid? You know, it's, this is amazing. And I know it's hard for listeners to believe, but we felt completely safe. And we went everywhere in Israel. We were in Jericho. We were in Bethlehem. So we were in Jewish and Palestinian areas and in mixed Jewish Arab neighborhoods within Israel. Now, I do need to add that this isn't my first experience traveling to Israel in times of tension. During my very first trip, the uh, first Lebanon war broke out and it was our tour bus and the Israeli army north of the Sea of Galilee. And we were also there with a student group when the second Gulf War broke out. So to be extra safe, we did watch things. We took care of ourselves. But in reality, it was just totally safe. Few in the States understand that the fighting and the tension are generally confined to very specific areas in the country, like the communities along the Gaza Strip or uh, modern Beersheba uh, or Ashkelon and Ashdod. But those are not where tourists normally go. Uh, when times of tension occur, there, there are some tourist spots that can be impacted, like the Temple Mount or Bethlehem or Jericho. But as I said, we went to Bethlehem and Jericho. Uh, we just chose not to go on the Temple Mount because that was a little bit more tense. In the past, there have been times when we've avoided those places as well. So uh, when that happens, there's a ton of other places we just simply put in their place. So on this particular trip, we just found it to be absolutely safe and uh, rather fun. Well, let me ask, how safe did you find things in terms of the pandemic? Israel seems to have led the world in vaccinating its citizens and bringing COVID under control. We've reported, uh, you know, many, many stories in our current events segment. But how did the pandemic impact your trip? What was different this time? And maybe what about uh, an impact that this might have on tourism in the coming months? Well, Israel really is the first country to gain herd immunity and to come out of the pandemic. Uh, They did it in part because of the mass vaccination program. They made a calculated decision. They paid more for the vaccine than most other countries. They cut a deal to have metrics provided on the vaccine's effectiveness. Uh, In exchange, they received that large initial supply of vaccine, and they worked out a very effective system to distribute it throughout the country. Some groups, like the ultra-Orthodox and some Arab communities, were hesitant about getting vaccinated, and Sadly, they had the larger percentage of COVID cases as a result. Hmm. But Israel kept pushing the vaccine safety, and eventually most groups came on board. Now, over the space of a few months, they went from having thousands of new cases each day to having just a few dozen or less. In fact, the final days we were in Israel, the news was that they hadn't had a single death for over a week, uh, and the hospitals were emptying, the economy was revving up. Uh, The problem now is that Israel doesn't want to allow any new strains of the virus into the country, so they're being especially vigilant, and that will impact tourism, at least over the next few months. Though it could change, I expect Israel to continue requiring visitors to show proof of being vaccinated by presenting their vaccination cards or possibly by taking that COVID test. I do hope that COVID tests get dropped and that the vaccination card becomes sufficient. But uh, they are looking to develop more efficient testing protocols as well. So I'm hoping that uh, very soon the system becomes far more streamlined. I'm also hoping that uh, those who want to go to Israel just recognize uh, getting vaccinated is probably the easiest and safest way to be prepared. And I think that that's a requirement that they're going to continue having for a while. Hmm. Um, But hopefully 
Some of those changes will take place as the summer goes on. And for people who are considering going to Israel this fall, they're going to find it's a lot easier than what we found when we went. Hmm. Well, the 2021 MedTech Breakthrough Awards have been announced. And the award for Best New Technology Solution for Pain Management went to Israeli-based company Theronica for its device to treat migraines and other pain conditions. What are the details on this award-winning innovation from Amazing Israel? Well, you know, as we've just been talking about traveling, traveling to Israel can be a headache, at least right now, but it pales in comparison, seriously, to someone who lives with a migraine. And that's why this award-winning innovation from Israel is so exciting. Theronica has developed a clinically proven migraine relief wearable device. Uh, The best way to describe it is to envision a device that looks something like a blood pressure cuff that's placed on your upper arm, but then connected to your smartphone. The device deploys remote electrical neuromodulation that stimulates peripheral nerves in the upper arm that can inhibit pain in remote body regions. Now, it's especially helpful for those who can't tolerate the current medicines for migraines or who experience side effects or allergic reactions to those medicines. The device, called Nerevio, is FDA authorized and is available by prescription. Nearly 67% of patients achieve pain relief and over 37% achieve pain freedom with the device. And of course, its proven benefits are what help the device receive the MedTech Breakthrough Award for Best New Technology Solution for Pain Management. Pain relief for migraines without drugs, allergic reaction, or side effects? Well, that's the kind of innovation from Amazing Israel that really does deserve recognition. And that's a look at current events. Charlie, your devotional for later on today intrigues me. Go to Shiloh. Uh, This is the town, if I'm not mistaken, that the mother of Samuel uh, would visit when she wanted to visit Samuel, whom she had given over to Eli in fulfillment of her promise. There was no Jerusalem temple at the time. Shiloh, a significant city, I'm guessing. Uh, It was. It was the religious heart of Israel at that time. But Jeremiah's message in Jeremiah 7 is a message of judgment on that very significant city. Well, that'll be coming up later in today's broadcast. First, though, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? You've heard that said. Is it really true? Stick around for the answer on The Land and the Book. You hear the question quite frequently, do Muslims and Christians actually worship the same God? Is it possible that Allah and Jehovah are sort of or even mostly the same? Could it be that we have more in common than we thought? It's about to get real interesting in a hurry. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. And just ahead of today's focus, I'm John Geiger, inviting you to think with me just for a brief moment about creative ways that we can show the love of Jesus, Isa, to our Muslim friends. A lot of times when you are in conversations with your Muslim friends, the uh, comparison will come up between Jesus and Muhammad. Is that advisable? Is that something we should try to uh, to whip up? Let's ask Stefano Fair with Call of Hope. What do you think? Well, I think that's a very hot topic. 
And uh, doing this, you can end up with so many problems and uh, doing so many mistakes. I think it's really difficult because, mm -hmm. of course, for them, Mohammed is the greater prophet. So now you come here and tell them, no, 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 no. Uh, whatever you think about Mohammed and Jesus, of course, is much, much greater and he's the son of God. You are in the middle of a very difficult conversation there. Yeah, and sure. I would really try, if possible, to avoid it. But sometimes it happens mm -hmm. that your friend might ask you, what do you think about yeah. Mohammed? Okay, let's And say then, hey, be frank. <laughs> then, then they would not love it if they feel you are not open to right. say what you really have on your heart. Yeah, you have addressed my question. Let's say you don't bring it up, but they do. You're saying you got to be bold. Hey, then go on and say what you think, because they feel if you are not doing it. And that's actually the worst thing to happen. Practical advice from Stefano Fair here on The Land and the Book. His ministry is Call of Hope. You can reach them online at callofhopeus.org. Dr. Andy Bannister is the director of the Solis Center for Public Christianity. He holds a Ph.D. in Islamic Studies and he speaks and teaches regularly throughout the UK, Europe, Canada, the USA, and most everywhere else. From universities to churches, business forums to TV and radio, he regularly addresses audiences made up of Christians or other faiths or no faith on issues relating to faith, culture, politics, and society. He's written the InterVarsity Press book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? Dr. Bannister joins us today from his home country of Scotland, Great to connect across the pond. It's uh, great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me on the show. So do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Andy, based purely on your personal observation, let me ask you, how is this question typically answered in secular circles? Well, in secular circles, John, I love in your intro, you said that it's everywhere. And the question is usually answered with an overwhelming yes. Uh, and the assumption goes, really, there's two reasons behind that. One is, look, Muslims and Christians, you know, we believe in a, a, a one God, a creator God. So surely it's the same God. And then there's also this tendency to lump uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians together under the term Abrahamic faith. And so, yeah, in the secular world, the answer is invariably yes. Let me ask you, how is that same question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God, answered in the evangelical world? Well, what I found interesting, John, since the book came out, I've had loads of people online, you know, good evangelical brothers and sisters kind of leaping on me in social media and saying, well, the answer is obviously no. So why have you written the book? To which I want to say to people, yeah, I think the, the evangelical, the biblical answer is largely no. But then, of course, our friends may say to us, but why is the answer no? And we need to be able to explain to people who don't share our Christian convictions why that's the case. Well, you do so in a very uh, storytelling, fun, engaging way. I, I didn't expect that, but uh, was very refreshed by your style. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you. I think that's important. You're right, John, because so often books like this or, or books that we might you know, think of as, a, as apologetic, to use the word that's often used for, for this sort of branch of communication, can often be a bit dry and dusty and, and boring. So I wanted to create something, firstly, that for, for Christians would be fun to read, but also that you might be able to give to your friend who's not a Christian, be they, be they a Muslim or secular, and say, look, you may not agree with everything that Andy says, but they'll enjoy it, it's fun, and, uh, and it moves along. You uh, have a PhD in Islamic studies. Let me ask you then, how do Muslims answer the question that you pose on the conversation of your book? Do they think Muslims and Christians worship the same God? 
Well, it's funny you should say that, John, because my, my Muslim friends and contacts divide kind of neatly into two. There are those who would say, well, of course it's the same God, because uh, they believe they are, you know, an Abrahamic faith. They believe that Muhammad was the last prophet in a line that, you know, began with all the prophets in the Old Testament and ran down through Jesus and, and so on. So they would say yes. But then I have other Muslim friends of mine who would say, well, hang on, you know, you Christians, you worship three gods, you know, because they get confused about the Trinity and so on. And I have Muslims of that persuasion who would say, no, no, you Christians have actually forsaken the worship of the one true God and Muslims, we need to call you back to true monotheism. So actually my Muslim friends divide nicely down the, the middle really as to how they would answer this question. One of your chapter titles is The Elephant in the Room, subtitled, Why It's Not Arrogant to Say That Someone's Religion is Wrong. Well, let's focus, though, on your rationale. If Christianity isn't true, then it's wrong. And the same is true for Islam. So go ahead and make your case. Take your time here. Well, I'd say a couple of things here, John. Firstly, let's begin with the idea it's actually in our culture, although we get nervous about religion and politics and so on, we still realize that truth is, is truth. You know, if you were flying in an aircraft sort of 34,000 feet across the Atlantic, imagine back in those happy days when we could fly, and the pilot announced over the Tannoy, you know, anyone who wants to can come up to the cockpit and press any buttons they want, because at the end of the day, you know, it wouldn't be right for me as a pilot to tell people how to fly the plane. So we'll let the all of it go any which way you like. I imagine you'd all be screaming uh, for help at that point, because we know that actually truth really matters when it comes to keeping an aircraft in the air. And I simply say when it comes to religion, the same actually matters. You know, truth statements matter. And of course, Islam and Christianity say some pretty profoundly different things. And even before we get on to sort of major theological ideas, just take something fairly straightforward, like the claim that Jesus was, was crucified on a Roman cross sometime round about AD 30. That's a historical claim. And of course, the Gospels and the New Testament are centered around that claim that Jesus was crucified and then, of course, later rose from the dead. The Quran, the scripture of Islam, denies that Jesus was, was crucified. And I say to people, look, both those claims cannot be true. Mm -hmm. They can't both be true. Jesus cannot have been both crucified and not crucified. And uncomfortable as that may make some of us, we do have to realize that ultimately either Christianity is true here or Islam is, is true. And the funny thing is, of course, my Muslim friends don't get offended by this. I have never, John, in 30 odd years of dialoguing with Muslims, I have never actually had a Muslim friend say, Andy, I'm offended because you think that I'm wrong. Um, my Muslim friends think that I'm wrong and they wish that I would believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. And I've had some fantastic conversations with Muslims. It's largely sort of slightly more progressive, secular Westerners, and perhaps more of our liberal Christian friends who get very nervous about the idea that, you know, I might be saying that what Muslims believe is wrong. But funnily enough, my Muslim friends aren't worried about that at all. Dr. Andy Bannister is a popular speaker, broadcaster, and an author who's written, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? It's a shame he doesn't have any more energy. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons we know that that uh, Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God is that the God of Christianity is relational. He can be known and wants us to know him, not just head knowledge, but experience and relationship. You write, Yahweh is willing to make himself known. He says in Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give to them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with the whole of their heart. Now, by contrast, you observe it is striking that in all the hundreds of references to knowledge in the Quran, there is no invitation to know Allah. Rather, what is expected of Muslims is correct belief about Allah. Why is this such an important distinction? 
I think it's absolutely crucial, John, because the question of whether whether God is relational really gets the heart of so many things. It gets the heart of the of the nature of what God is God is like. Is God a God who is who is personal and knowable and all of those kind of things? It also gets the heart really of what it means to be a human being. Are we created just to obey, just to be slaves and servants, or are we actually designed for something else? And of course, based upon the idea uh, that the God of the Bible is a God who is relational, so much else flows. You know, you think of that, that very first uh, couple, two or three chapters in the Bible, the book of Genesis, where we see that, you know, when God creates Adam and Eve, you know, one of my favorite verses is found in Genesis 3, verse 8, John, where we read that, um, you know, Yahweh is there walking and talking in the garden with Adam and Eve. You know, he immediately steps into relationship uh, with the humans he's created. And of course, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, uh, penultimate chapter of the Bible, we have this tremendous vision of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like uh, with God there dwelling with his people. So the, the whole Bible really screams relationship at you. That's what God designed us for. That broken relationship is what went wrong in the garden. And it's what the whole story of the Bible is about putting back together again. And it's all missing uh, in the Quran. It's a totally different view of God, that God in the Quran is really this sort of distant ruler who sends down commands and instructions. He's to be obeyed. He wants human beings to obey him, but nothing more than that. So it's a very one-dimensional view of God. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to say the God of the Bible doesn't ask us, expect us to obey him. He is clearly the, the creator mm-hmm. and uh, we are the created, but it's far much, uh, so much more than that. What God desires, as I read the scriptures, is sons and daughters. And that's the, uh, the incredible offer that's there for us through Jesus. So two very different views of, of God, I think, uh, in the Bible and the Quran. So why isn't this lack of relatability more troubling to Muslims? Well, I think if you've been raised in a religion, John, that tells you that there is no relationship to be had, that your job is to obey the commands that God gives you as faithfully as you can and hope that by doing so you gain enough merit and good works that on the day of judgment you stand the greatest possible chance of of God being, you know, God fighting in your favor and allowing you into paradise. The idea of relationship doesn't really enter your head. It's not in your paradigm. But the one thing I would say, though, is interesting. I've met many Muslims over the years who actually do yearn for something more. I was, uh, it was a very famous uh, book written by a friend of mine called Nabil Qureshi, which some of your readers mm-hmm. may have come across, Seeking Allah, Fighting Jesus, New York Times bestselling book. And if you read his testimony, that was what he found as a Muslim. He wanted more. He, was just, he found that simply obeying the commandments wasn't really you know, sort of swaging the spiritual hunger within. He wanted to know God. And as he began exploring that, found that Islam really didn't offer that, but came to discover that was an offer in and through Jesus. So I think many Muslims do yearn for something more. And I think in our encounters with them, as we talk to our friends and neighbors and colleagues, if we have Muslims in our lives, that's what I would encourage your listeners to be doing in our evangelism, gently and respectfully saying there is more about to God than simply obeying. Obeying is important. Yes, let's do that because God is holy and we want to be holy as his people. Uh, But actually, God intends us to actually know him. And I think, as I say, I think many Muslims have that sort of desire within them that we can tap into and connect them to. One key chapter for me is uh, the one you titled The Misfit Messiah. Mm. And in it, you point out that uh, Islam, while giving you know certain respect uh, to Jesus as a prophet, is quick to uh, cut him down to size, so to speak, uh, never, never giving him uh, the role that, that we see in Scripture. Talk about this just a bit. What's a good conversational starter with my Muslim friend along these lines, with Jesus as, as, as God? 
Well, one of the things I always like to, to say, John, to my Muslim friends is that although Muslims have been taught that Jesus was just another prophet, just like all the Old Testament prophets, just like Muhammad, you know, not God in any sense, but just someone come to talk to us about God, is that even in the Quran itself, at about the 90 verses that talk about Jesus, it's clear something else is going on. Uh, the Quran describes the story of the virgin birth in actually quite a lot of detail which raises the question, why does Jesus, among all the Quranic prophets, why was he anyone born of a virgin? Um, the Quran describes Jesus doing incredible miracles that no other Quranic prophet does. He, you know, he opens the eyes of the blind, he raises the, the dead, and, and so on and so forth. The Quran describes these quite lofty titles to Jesus, not used of any other Quranic prophet. He's a word from Allah, a spirit from Allah. He's the Messiah. And I always want to say to my Muslim friends, why is it if he's just another prophet like all the others, why does he stand out in so many ways? And you see, what I think is actually going on is the Quran has borrowed the figure of Jesus, tried to kind of cut him down to size and failed. He still stands out. And so I always want to say to my Muslim friends, look, so I think understand why all of these significant titles and miracles and biography is ascribed to Jesus. You actually need to go look at the Gospels because there he makes sense. The Jesus of the Quran, on the other hand, doesn't fit. I use the analogy in the book, actually. It would be a bit like somebody taking the character of Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings and inserting <laughs> him into Pride and Prejudice. It doesn't work. He's too big. He sort of ex would explode out of the story. And I think the same happens in the Quran. So with your Muslim friends, start with the Jesus of the Quran, ask good questions, but find ways to connect them to the Jesus of the Gospels. And, and that chapter in the book is designed to help you do that. If you've no idea what the Quran says about Jesus, that's okay. That chapter will help you dig into that a little bit and see ways to build bridges for your Muslim friends to encounter the real Jesus. We've got to have you back on the program again. Thanks for your time. It's been really great chatting to you, John. Thanks so much. Andy Bannister, who's written, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? Information at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's back right after this. that time again here on The Land and the Book. Time to open up our Bibles, open up our minds, and open up our email. Yeah, questions that have come from you, listeners, as, as you've uh, puzzled over things that you've encountered in the Word of God. We're always glad to entertain those questions here on The Land and the Book, but maybe it's a question about prophecy itself or a question about the land of Israel. Did you know that's welcome to anytime? You can email us at thelandandthebook at Moody. .edu. John Geiger back with you. Charlie Dyer, our host. Charlie, you ready? I'm ready, John. Let me turn the page to a question from Joanne. She says, um, I was listening to the land of the book today, and I heard you speak about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I had never noticed before that in verse 30 of the chapter, it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I figured that maybe this guy was leaving Jerusalem, likely had completed his service in the temple. And it wouldn't be that big a deal to be defiled by touching a dead body or blood. These people could be clean in seven days and wouldn't likely have to serve in the temple again for a while, right? All this made me think maybe the priests in the story were not stopping for another reason, perhaps out of fear from being possibly robbed themselves. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, in terms of leaving the temple and returning home, I think you're right. That little detail in the story is suggesting that Jesus is saying they were heading home after serving in the temple. That's why they were going down from Jerusalem. But I don't believe they would have relaxed their standards after leaving Jerusalem. Now, I say that 
because they were trained to maintain ritual purity in all aspects of their lives, not only while they were on duty. You know, from childhood, they were trained to follow the traditional laws of Jewish purity. And Leviticus 21.1 said, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. Now, in the case of Jesus's parable, the man was injured, but he was still alive. So they were taking what God had commanded about not touching a dead body and using it as an excuse not to get involved. Now, could they have been afraid of being robbed themselves? Well, yeah, that was always a very real possibility on that roadway. But in either case, the real issue was the reality that they were only concerned about themselves and didn't show a genuine concern for their neighbor. Holly takes us to the book of Habakkuk. The last verse there says, The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like deer's feet and has made me walk on high places. What does my high places refer to? Usually in the Old Testament, high places are places of idol worship. Does that fit here? Well, I think in this case, Habakkuk is alluding back to what David wrote in Psalm 18. Uh, David uses the same words for hind and high place. And while a high place could be used to describe places of idol worship, I believe David and then Habakkuk as well were using the word in a more general sense to describe a rocky height. Now, I say that because they both use the imagery of a hind or a doe picking its way along this rocky crag. As a result, I think the imagery is of a deer or ibex or gazelle nimbly walking along an otherwise treacherous cliff, and it actually presents a poetic picture of safety and security in difficult times. In essence, Habakkuk is saying that even if the world around him is falling apart, he's confident God will take care of him, keeping him safe, and providing sure footing as he makes his way along life's pathway. You know, once while hiking in Engedi several years ago now, I looked up and saw some ibex calmly walking up the edge of the cliff. Their sure-footedness allowed them to walk on the heights, and I think this is the imagery Habakkuk was also using to end his prayer. Barb says, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I keep coming across the fact that yeast was not to be used in making bread for many occasions. My ignorance, but why? Well, I think the Bible presents two reasons. First, the use of unleavened bread was to remind Israel that during the very first Passover, they had to leave Egypt in a hurry. They didn't have time to allow the yeast or the leaven to get mixed into the dough. Exodus 12:39 says, With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Uh, second, the removal of that yeast or leaven, especially during the Passover celebration, later became a symbol of removing the impurity of sin. Just as leaven works to permeate a dough, uh, so sin can work its way into a person's life. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul used the illustration of unleavened bread during Passover to make that point. And he says, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So both of those are actually used in the Bible to say why they ate unleavened bread. If you're joining us midstream, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's answering listener questions that have been emailed to us. And Scott wants to know about uh, people in his church who have differing views concerning whether Jews still need to follow the dietary laws of the Torah. Those in favor cite Matthew 5, 17 and 18, where Jesus says the law will remain until heaven and earth pass away. 
Those opposed cite Peter's vision in Acts 10 and Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 2 and Galatians 3. So are Messianic Jews today required to follow the dietary laws? The short answer is that Messianic Jews are not required by God to follow the dietary laws. And the strongest passages I see in this regard, uh, well, Galatians 2, 11 to 16 would be one. Paul rebukes Peter there for hypocrisy. In Antioch, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles, Paul says, and no doubt eating non-kosher food, until some of the Jewish believers arrived from Jerusalem. Peter then pulled back and Paul rebuked him for it. The second passage would be Galatians 3, as you noted, especially in verse 10. Uh, He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. And then in verse 13, he clearly says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then the third passage I, I see in Colossians 2, which you also noted, it's a strong statement in that regard. Paul specifically mentions that what they eat or drink, that's the dietary laws, the festivals, the new moon celebrations, and the Sabbath. He describes all of them, and he says they were a shadow of the things that were to come. Now, let me balance it all out with one other passage. Romans 14, it's an important principle. Uh, Paul describes how some believers had no problem eating everything, while others were very careful not to eat some food. Now, he could be referring to the Gentile practice of buying and eating meat that had been offered to an idol, but He could also have in mind the Jewish-Gentile debate on clean and unclean food, since in that same context, he deals with the issue of Sabbath observance. Paul says, neither practice is right or wrong by itself. A person needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that the one who does restrict what he eats or who sets aside a special day must not condemn those who don't follow those commands. At the same time, he says, individuals who sense the freedom to eat anything or to not have that special day set aside must not look down on those who feel bound to do so. And I think that law of love and that principle of understanding is very important today. Dan writes, my wife and I are reading and listening through the Bible this year. Deuteronomy 17 was one of our chapters this morning. Moses directs the kings of Israel to write out for themselves a copy of the law for a personal copy in their own handwriting, for the king to read all the days of his life, learning to fear the Lord. So here's my question. Number one, do we know if the directive was followed? And number two, do we know if the directive was to personally write the entire Pentateuch or just the Ten Commandments? Yeah, and the Bible doesn't present a direct answer to either question, so I'm going to be a bit tentative here. Uh, We have no direct record in the Bible that says a king actually followed this command, but we also don't have any direct evidence that says they didn't follow the command. Uh, There are two passages, though, that at least provide some hints on what might have been done. The first is 1 Samuel 10. Samuel was leading the people when God appointed Saul as their first king. After Saul was presented, verse 25 says, Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Now that suggests Samuel made a copy of at least a portion of God's word that dealt specifically with what God expected of a king. Could be uh, Deuteronomy 17. It could have been some of the other provisions in the Mosaic law, like the Ten Commandments, but we're not told what the scroll contained. But it does say Samuel wrote it down, not Saul, and it was deposited before the Lord, which could refer to the tabernacle, though by that time Shiloh had been destroyed, the pieces of the tabernacle were scattered. So it's possible the phrase also has the idea that Samuel gave the scroll to Saul in a ceremony in the presence of God. The other passage is 2 Chronicles 23. That's the amazing story of the seven-year-old Joash who was made king. 
And what it says in 2311 is uh, this amazing detail. Jehoiada, the high priest and his sons, brought out the king's son, put the crown on him. They presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. So part of the coronation ceremony was the presentation of a copy of the covenant. Since he was only seven years old at the time, he was likely too young to write the book out for himself. But the idea of being given a copy of the covenant, either Deuteronomy or the whole of the Mosaic law, was still part of the ceremony when the king took office. And that's a look at questions that have come into our inbox. Yours is welcome anytime. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Have you checked out our podcast yet? It's a great way to listen. We hear from more and more people as they do email us that they are connecting with the podcast, a fun way to listen anywhere, anytime. It's available at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Don't go away. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next on The Land and the Book. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. You know, the Bible assures us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. How that reality plays out in the book of Jeremiah is what we'll find out in just a moment. Right now, let's find out how going to the Holy Land has impacted this person. Check out this Holy Land experience. Hi, my wife and I were fortunate enough to go to Israel this past June, and I was really looking for a takeaway that would actually help others as well who haven't been as fortunate to go. And to me, what really hit me was both Leviticus 26 and Psalm 106. Leviticus 26, it talks about God promising Israel that if they obey his commands, that he'll allow that to continue to be a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will not have to work for their food. Their food will be plentiful, and no sword will pass through the land. Well, for anyone who's been there, it's not exactly a beautiful land, so to speak, in terms of I didn't see a whole lot of milk or honey flowing around. And in fact, we saw 19, 20-year-old girls walking around with fully automatic machine guns uh, because they're working in the military and clearly the sword is passing through the land. So our takeaway is that God is as serious as a heart attack and he meant what he said in Leviticus 26 and that land and what's going on there is proof of it and all of us should take note. In Jeremiah chapter 7 is a reference to a place called Shiloh. Charlie, where are we headed on today's devotional, and what should we be watching for? Well, we're heading north of Jerusalem into the heart of the West Bank, and uh, what I want you to watch for is what you see and don't see on this site. All right, I'll keep my eyes and ears open. All right, you know, the world is constantly telling us where we ought to be going. Horace Greeley said, go west, young man. Others have said that you need to go for broke. But you don't want to go postal or you don't want to go to pot. Sometimes we need to go against the flow, but we might even need to go to the mat for something we really believe in. But what would you do if someone told you to go to Shiloh? Well, that's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah did. And today we're going to follow his advice. Our journey takes us into the heart of the West Bank or Samaria, depending on which name you choose, which has political overtones. But that's just the nature of life in this part of the world. 
We're less than 20 miles north of Jerusalem, but we're in an area that's visited by relatively few tourists. And that's sad because the site has much to teach us historically and biblically. Follow me to the viewing platform on top of the hill. From here, we get a great view of Shiloh and the surrounding area. Shiloh was tucked into a remote part of the tribal allotment given to Ephraim. And it was at this spot where God had the priests finally pitch the tabernacle of Moses that they had carried with them through the wilderness. Uh, Perhaps God selected this secluded area for the tabernacle to provide his people with a place of safety where they could gather to worship him. How remote was the site? Well, by the time the book of Judges was completed, the writer felt compelled to give specific directions to the site. In 2119, he provides the most comprehensive set of directions to any place found in the Bible. Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. I can just hear him giving the directions today. Head north on the main road from Bethel to Shechem. Now, just before you get to Labona, take the road that heads off to the east and you'll eventually come to Shiloh. Why the detailed directions? Because the site was remote and easy to miss. From this viewing tower, we can actually see the spot where the tabernacle likely stood. See that rectangular area just on the north side of the hill? That's the approximate size of the area taken up by the outer curtain that surrounded the tabernacle. Evidently, the curtain was replaced by a wall once the tabernacle found a permanent home here in the land. Now, look on the western side of that rectangle. You can still see the stone foundations of a building that rested where the holy place and holy of holies would have been located. It appears that the original tabernacle was replaced by a more permanent building. And this might actually help explain one tiny detail in 1 Samuel 3.15. When young Samuel was ministering at Shiloh, it says he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. The original tabernacle was a tent and didn't have doors. But evidently the more permanent structure built at Shiloh replaced the tent with a stone building and replaced the tent flaps with more permanent doors. Let's walk down there. I find it amazing to think we're standing at the very site where the tabernacle of God once stood. The furniture built at the time of Moses and Aaron sat inside these walls. Eli, Hannah, and young Samuel stood where we're now standing. And you might be thinking, now I know why Jeremiah wanted us to go to Shiloh, to remember Israel's glorious past. But if so, you're wrong. Jeremiah was speaking to a jaded audience that had heard it all, seen it all, and done it all. He was trying to impress on them the importance of turning back to God and accepting God's standards of right and wrong, but they had heard these messages of doom and gloom before. In their mind, Jeremiah was just another in a long string of shrill prophets who preached an end times judgment that never came to pass. How could they be so certain that judgment wasn't on the way? It was simple. At least they thought it was simple. God's house was in Jerusalem, and God would never destroy his house. Their mantra back to Jeremiah in chapter 7 is very straightforward. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, we have nothing to worry about. God built his house here in Jerusalem, and God would never destroy his own home. 
And that's when Jeremiah told them to go to Shiloh. Actually, he said it this way, But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Well, we're in Shiloh, so what do you see? We see ruins, a place once inhabited that was destroyed suddenly and completely. The Philistines defeated Israel in battle and captured the Ark of the Covenant. Evidently, they also came to Shiloh and put the city to the sword. The Ark of the Covenant remained in Philistine hands for seven months. The altar of burnt offering was carried to Gibeon. The table of showbread ended up at Nob near Jerusalem. Evidently, the pieces of furniture were carried in multiple directions by the priests who fled the slaughter at Shiloh. And now the words of Jeremiah become clear. He wanted us to go to Shiloh to learn a lesson from history. And that lesson is that obedience is more important to God than religious objects. He might indeed have dwelt in the tabernacle at Shiloh, but he still destroyed the site when the people became disobedient. And, Jeremiah warned, God would do the same thing to his temple in Jerusalem if the people continued on their downward path of injustice, immorality, and idolatry. It's time for us to leave Shiloh and head back home, but what lesson can we carry with us from this rather sobering sight? Perhaps it's this. God holds individuals and nations accountable for their actions. He's clearly laid out standards of right and wrong, and he's threatened to punish those who rebel against him. We know that there's an ultimate judgment coming in the future, but we must also understand there have been times in history when God judged nations for their actions. We don't know when he might call the heavenly court of justice to order, but his patience won't extend forever. And the prophet Nahum wrote, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How about we spend the next week praying for our country? Let's ask God to extend his mercy and to spark a revival and ask him to begin with us. Ask him to make us men and women of courage and conviction who live in obedience to his word and who are bold in sharing that word with those around us. Then take one last look at Shiloh and remember the awful consequences to be paid for disobedience. Thank you, Charlie. That is a very sobering reminder and one that we need. If you have never been to our website or if it's been a while, you're missing out on some great resources. For one thing, you can find out about what's going on next week, for example, on The Land and the Book. Who's our guest? Also, uh, some great links there that'll take you to past programs. Our podcast, of course, at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer and I have both written some books, and you'll find those available when you click on the Books tab. All of this and much more at thelandandthebook.org. And did I mention, if you appreciate this program, there's a way that you can support this ministry financially. Click on the link there that says Donate to the Land and the Book. Thanks for doing that. Well, we appreciate your sharing your day with us, and we appreciate it when you share us with your friends. Let them know about the Land and the Book, won't you? Thanks for doing that. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Hope your day's a good one.